What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hello, friends. It's Friday the 13th, but no Triscodecophobia here. We carry on as usual. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. And welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable. Before you head into the weekend, your chance to get up to date on the big stories of the week with three top political reporters. Bombshell news yesterday, the House January 6th committee stunned Washington by issuing subpoenas to five Republicans in Congress, including Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, all five of whom had dismissed previous requests to testify voluntarily. They're certain to refuse, but when they do, will anything happen? In other news of the week, Donald Trump won a big primary in West Virginia, but lost a big one in Nebraska. He also learned that he's the target of an FBI investigation over classified documents that he took with him to Mar-a-Lago. On Wednesday, Senate Democrats staged a hopeless vote to codify Roe v. Wade. America marked the grim milestone of one million COVID deaths. And this week, Joe Biden came out swinging against what he called the ultra-mega party. Ugh, a lot to dig into, so here today to help us make some sense of it all, Jeff Dufer, Editor-in-Chief, National Journal, Lauren Burke, news writer, Black Press USA, and host of the Burke File podcast, and from the West Coast, Melanie Mason, National Political Correspondent of the LA Times. Hello to you all. Thanks for joining us. So, uh, Jeff, this big uh, issuing the subpoena is uh, an unusual move for a congressional investigation to subpoena sitting members of Congress. They're not going to testify. So why did the committee do this? What's it mean? That's a good question. Apparently, there was a lot of hand-wringing over this. Um, Liz Cheney was was reportedly the primary driver of this and wanted to have no stone unturned, um, or at least no stone try to be unturned. As uh, you said, uh, they're, they're never going to testify. Um, I don't think there's going to be a, an actual price paid politically or legally for McCarthy and his and his uh, cronies. They know they can just run the clock out because they think they're going to take the House over. Um, and any attempt to enforce this in the meantime is going to trigger all kinds of litigation over congressional prerogatives, the speech and debate clause, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, politically, I think this is, is a fascinating development because after trying to keep the Freedom Caucus at arm's length for, for years, really, McCarthy now finds himself in the exact same foxhole with them. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. five, there were five subpoenas issued. Four of them, Andy Biggs, Jim Jordan, Scott Perry, Mo Brooks, are all Freedom Caucus members. Um, Perry is the current chair. Biggs and Jordan are the pa are past chairs. The only one who isn't a Freedom Caucus member is, is McCarthy. Um, so paradoxically, I think you, you'd think that this would hurt McCarthy's chances to become speaker, but no, I think it actually improves his chances to become speaker. 
he needs to lock down those Freedom Caucus votes, even if he loses a couple moderates in the process. There aren't mm-hmm. that many moderates left. Uh, and if he's closing ranks with the Freedom Caucus, you'd have to think that that, uh, that, that helps as far as solidarity goes. So, Melanie, um, these subpoenas are, are really a prelude to the public hearings for this committee that are now scheduled to start June 9, uh, nationally televised hearings, January 6. What kind of resonance does this still have across the country, are you finding? I mean, are people still interested? Is January 6 still, you know, front and center as an issue? I think if you're out and you're talking to voters across the country, uh, I think the short answer is no. I mean, there is so much news yeah. going on. And I think that the fundamentals, when you're talking about the economy, when you're talking about uh, people's worried about public safety, about COVID resurging. But I do think individual developments have the possibility of captivating p- people's attention, at least for you know a, an evening, a couple minutes. And so I do think that the question <laughs> for this committee yeah. is, are they able to through these hearings, sort of lay out a narrative that builds on itself. And I think that uh, Democrats and then the the two Republicans who are on the committee, they need to be able to present something that's compelling. And and my question is, is this drip, drip, drip of information, this feeling like they are building towards something, does it feel a little bit resonant to what was going on with the Mueller report a couple of years ago, uh, where the expectations of some big bombshell might be outpacing what is actually discovered? So I think that the committee needs to, to grab people's attention and build upon it. But I do wonder about the expectations game that they may be setting up. Right. Uh, and Lauren, uh, there's always a question about like where they are heading and how high they're going to go. Um, related to this, I want to play a quick, quick clip. So Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper uh, is out with a new book, right? And he appeared on Fox News this week with Brett Baer. And Brett asked him, I think, a pretty critical question that does relate to what the January 6th committee is looking into. Uh, here's here's uh, uh, Mark Esper. Do you think Donald Trump was a threat to democracy? I think that given the events of January 6th, given how he has undermined the election results, he incited people to come to D.C., stirred him up that morning and failed to call him off. To me, that threatens our democracy. So, yes, I think the answer would What else can you conclude, Brett? So, Lauren, is this where the committee is going to uh, right after Donald Trump himself as a threat to democracy? Yeah. I mean, obviously, they have to broaden out the debate and talk about the attack on the U.S. Capitol and our democracy. I mean, if you can't market that, if the Democratic, Democratic Party can't make that a compelling argument, and I get that our news cycles are very short. The attention spans are very short. Gas is almost at $5, so there's a lot of distractions. Everybody understands that. But the idea that this isn't compelling and that subpoenaing five members of Congress, you know, I guess I'm old here because I'm old enough to remember when Bill Jefferson's office was raided in 2006. We did have a debate over whether or not the executive branch could investigate the legislative branch. But once again, there's all sorts of elements to this. And it, you know, the questions that we asked the members yesterday, Benny Thompson, uh, Raskin, everybody, was basically when they ignore the subpoena, you know, what is going to happen? What are you going to do? And of course, the House members are stuck on, well, maybe we'll go through the ethics committee. Maybe we'll go to contempt. But really, none of the members of the January 6th committee wanted to answer that question. Benny Thompson really didn't want to answer that question. It's generally understood that these subpoenas are going to be ignored. But at the same time, it's generally understood that there are other things that can happen that could, you know, escalate it further, possibly, uh, in, including the DOJ doing something. But really, I mean, everybody knows that it's 180 days to 
uh, election day. They are running out of time. The other big question they were asked was, look, if you do these types of things, subpoenaing these members, wouldn't you expect that the Republicans are going to do the same to Democrats next year, which is another thing sitting out there. So I don't know. I, I do think that the if, if you can't have hearings, live hearings that, that can't make this compelling, I'm, I'm not sure what else has to happen. Yeah. Uh, so, Jeff, in the meantime, the FBI, uh, we learned yesterday that the FBI is another yet another investigation of Donald Trump. Uh, these are over these documents that he took down to Mar-a-Lago with him, and then the National Archives got them back, and now the FBI is investigating these. What, what's this all about? What are these documents, and why are they so important? In my mind, we don't know what this is, uh, what these documents are necessarily all about. But in my mind, the, the one antecedent I keep thinking about is Sandy Berger, uh, of course, the, the Clinton NSC mm. uh, director who was uh, caught spiriting some documents out of the National Archives, uh, and he got the nickname Sandy Burglar. Um, <laughs> this is not uh, this is not quite as cut and dried. I think Trump does have some more plausible deniability than that. It's, well, somebody had packed some stuff up, and among the things they were packing up was this uh, tranche of documents that turned out to be classified. Sorry, we gave them back. Um, but I'm I'm just also blown away at the, at the, the legal exposure that an ex-president faces. Typically, an, an ex-president gets out of the White House and faces zero legal exposure. Uh, now we've got this. We've got his property in Westchester. I can't even keep track of it all. There's, there's multiple, multiple fronts of, of legal exposure uh, that, that, that he's got. And I think this, if he wants to run in, in, in 2024, which he, he seems to want to do, uh, he's going to have to get some of this stuff in his rearview mirror, I would think. Uh, he, he says he doesn't, he, of course, he's, he said in the past he doesn't want to settle, but he always settles. Uh, you know, he settled Trump University. He settled the charity stuff. <laughs> uh, right. I, he just settled with, uh, with DC over the, over the Trump hotel, which uh, during inauguration, which now no, no longer has his name on it. Uh, so in some way, shape or form, he has to get some of this stuff in his rearview mirror if he's going to run. Yeah. Uh, we've also never seen a former president, uh, you say so exposed, uh, on the legal front, we've never seen one so active on the political front. And we saw that, uh, we've seen that now in Republican primary after Republican primary. Uh, endorsing candidates right and left for Senate, for governor, for House, for dog catcher. I don't know. Melanie, how's he doing? Well, so far, his his record, which I do think is a metric that's very important to him, uh, is quite good, uh, both because he has sort of stacked his early endorsements with ringers, right? Folks who are in deep red districts were clearly going to win their primaries, uh, but also because he has shown yeah. some political heft, like the Ohio Senate race, where he really did propel J.D. Vance uh, to victory. And so what we saw in this last round of primaries is that he did well in West Virginia and, and um, endorsed get winning or his endorsing winning um, a congressional race. But in Nebraska, for example, his gubernatorial candidate, who has been racked with lots of scandal in himself, did not get over the finish line. So sort of a mixed decision there. Uh, but I do think that this is how Trump continues to keep himself relevant in the news cycle. I get those press releases every day of endorsements that range from, as you said, 
governor or Senate to literally Miami-Dade County executive. I mean, it really is as, as granular as you can get. And what that does is it, it injects them into every storyline for every primary. Um, and in some sense, the, the record matters. But I also think just, just the conversation is something that I think continues to benefit somebody who desperately wants to still be seen as the center of the political universe. Lauren, are we are we exaggerating maybe Trump's importance? Uh, now Melanie mentioned J.D. Vance. He did win the primary in Ohio with 32% of the vote. 68 per, 68% of Republicans in Ohio voted for someone Donald Trump did not endorse. I mean, they were conservative. They were Trumpers, right? But they were not Trump's guy. Right. It, it seems to be a little bit all over the place. Um, yes, the West Virginia candidate won, won by a lot. Uh Alex Mooney was 54%. Uh, then I think about last year in Virginia, how Glenn Youngkin kept uh, Trump out of the Commonwealth of Virginia and won. Uh, one of the, and of course, you do have the J.D. Vance example. Trump won that. Uh, but, you know, what I think may answer our question is the Pennsylvania situation. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he, yeah. uh, he uh, you know, has endorsed Dr. Oz and Oz is up in the polls. Uh, interestingly, you have a surging black Republican female candidate, but I don't know that she's going to surge past, you know, up to the top. That may answer the question, but it does seem like if you did a scorecard, it would be a little bit all over the place. You know, Trump wins some and he, sometimes he loses some. So, Jeff, what's your what's your read on the on Pennsylvania? It's up. This is next Tuesday. It's going to be the next contest. Yeah. Mehmet Oz, who I don't know, it seems to me to be kind of nuts, uh, <laughs> but he is leading with Trump's endorsement. And a lot of Republicans are saying that was a big mistake. And as as uh, uh, Lauren pointed out, suddenly there's this Kathy Barnett who is, you know, really climbing up in the polls. And everybody says she would be the worst possible candidate for Republicans to run based on some of the, her previous statements about gays and Muslims and Barack Obama and everything else. What's going on? Everyone thought Ohio was really the main event in terms of Republican and Republican primaries. But I think this one eclipses it. <laughs> uh, you've got to You've got a really close race and you've got three candidates who can each lay a different yet credible claim to the MAGA flag. You've got Oz, who's got the actual Trump endorsement. Uh, you've got McCormick, who is surrounded yep. by ex-Trump staffers. Right. And then you've got Barnett, who is arguably the most Trumpy of all of them. <laughs> um, the, the one thing she didn't have was money, but I just read this morning – the, the Susan B. Anthony list just announced this morning they're spending $2.3 million on mm. her behalf in uh, on ads, um, partly because uh, Barnett makes abortion such a central part of her uh, of her pitch. Uh, she says that that she was the the product of a rape, um, and that because her mother did not terminate that pregnancy, she's she's here today. Uh, so she's very much carrying that flag um, as. Uh, especially as the as the only woman in the race. Um, so meanwhile, she really benefits from Oz and McCormick uh, going scorched earth on each other. Uh, millions and millions of ads just beating each other up for the last you know, two or three months. And that was really created a vacuum for, for Barnett to step in. Uh, is she going to win? It's, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, but re regardless of what happens, I expect the, the final tally to be very, very splintered. I don't think anybody's going to come close to 50%. And that's May 17th, but there are a series of Republican primaries here. Um, and we'll see how they all play out. And 
where Donald Trump ends up at the end of it uh, with his uh, with his scorecard, which we will all be watching. Um, Jeff, you mentioned uh, the word abortion. Uh, that's the issue, key issue in Pennsylvania and still a key issue in Washington uh, based on the big leak from the Supreme Court, Justice Alito's draft opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, that still dominates the news in Washington. Let's jump into that. But first, a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. Then we'll be back with today's panel, Jeff Dufer from National Journal, Lauren Burke from Black Press USA, Melanie Mason from the Los Angeles Times. And today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the great men and women of the Teamsters Union, one and a half million members strong, the largest and most diverse of all of America's labor unions. Now, under the new leadership of General President Sean O'Brien, they represent just about every sector of American workers, from vegetable workers in California, construction workers in Las Vegas, brewery workers in St. Louis, to bakery workers in Maine. As they say, they represent everybody from A to Z, everybody from airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the members of the Teamsters Union, thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod, and direct you to their website at teamster.org. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy. Like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we're back with today's roundtable. Melanie Mason joining us from the LA Times. Lauren Burke, Black Press USA, and her own Burke File podcast. And Jeff Dufer from National Journal. Uh, protests continue in Washington and cities around the country about the pending uh, decision of the Supreme Court, uh, judging by a leaked draft opinion written by Justice Samuel Lito, that the Supreme Court will, in fact, overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, the Senate Democrats staged a vote this week in the, in, in the Senate, of course, uh, to codify Roe v. Wade. They couldn't even get past the filibuster. That effort failed, 51 to 49 Knowing they couldn't make it, Lauren, why did they do this? Was it a waste of their time? Uh, 
I don't know that it was a complete waste of their time. I, I think they did want a message. Obviously, they wanted the message around it, but the message was not particularly strong. And of course, the vote was a losing one, and it makes you know forces people, of course, to have to talk about the filibuster, which uh, Senator Senator Elizabeth Warren was stomping around talking about a little bit, but it still you know hasn't gotten to the point where they sound like they're going to actually change anything. Um, you know, it would be interesting if the Democratic Party had some sort of sense of political strategy on these things. They, of course, had the uh, Vice President Kamala Harris come up, up and sit in the chair, and then she made a statement. You know, after the mm-hmm. vote, and Patty Murray and Senator Schumer made a statement. But one would think that uh, you know they might do this in a more piecemeal way, even if it was just a filibuster vote. Uh, you know, bringing up things like the rape incest exception with regard to abortion, make people take a vote on that, making Manchin take that vote. Now, I, I know that Manchin is pro-life and it's probably not going to change anything, but I just think that democratic messaging as usual is not as strong as it could be given what we see in the polls on the abortion issue. Um, So I guess the answer to your question is that (laughs) that probably was not a good use of time. We'll see what they do next. It was definitely intended as a message vote, right? To get the message out that uh, one party is pro-choice, the other party clearly is not, make no mistake about it. In terms of messaging, Melanie from the West Coast, we heard uh, a familiar voice uh, sort of echoing some of the things that Lauren said about, come on, guys, where are you? Get your act together. Here is Governor Gavin Newsom. Where is the Democratic Party? Where's the party? Why aren't we calling this out? This is a concerted, coordinated effort. And yes, they're winning. We need to stand up. Where's the counteroffensive? Melanie, what's Gavin's plan? Well, in some ways, this is um, a, a perfect issue for Newsom to seize on. You know, he's running for re-election uh, for governor, and he's in great shape. He has a ton of money. He has sort of nominal Republican opposition. He won very handily last year in this recall effort. But at the same time, I think that he was flailing a little bit to figure out what his re-election message was, because the truth is, is that mood out here in California is incredibly pessimistic. Our, our voters, according to our polls, see the state and the country going in the wrong direction. And so this gives Newsom something to run against because his Republican opponent really isn't sort of quite the uh, sparring partner that he would need. And so he gets to run against um, uh the the uh, dismantling of Roe v. Wade. And I also think he gets to distance himself a bit from the National Republican Party, I mean, sorry, Democratic Party, which people I think are feeling a little bit disillusioned with because of this lack of coordinated plan. I mean, we know that there has been a 40 year effort to have Roe v. Wade overturned. The fact that Democrats seem to be so baffled by their messaging, I think that Newsom is happy to, to put a little distance. Um, and the other thing is, is that this is it's a way for him to seize not just the California statewide news cycle, but the national news cycle. And of course, this is somebody who we're always wondering if he is mm-hmm. um, keeping his eye on higher office. So I think that for Newsom, he he clearly saw this as a natural issue for him to step into. Does he also um, see California as a sanctuary state, basically, on this issue? Yes. And in fact, his new budget. He's will talked pro- about that, I believe. He has. And his new budget will actually include uh, funds that would uh, pay for um, out-of-state women to get the, the procedure done here in California. It would help uh, sort of essentially make the state this this safe haven. Of course, that budget would have to be uh, approved by lawmakers. Uh, but I think that California in its state constitution 
has the right of pri- to privacy already written in, which has been interpreted by the courts as an explicitly a, a, a abortion a, a protection for, by our state courts. Mm-hmm. He still would like to have even more explicitly a constitutional amendment saying we really mean it. Abortion is legal in this state. Uh, that also is another way to get Cal- uh, Democratic voters out to the polls in November, uh, because that is something that the voters would have to approve. But I think that he, again, is both sending a message to uh, the the uh, pro-abortion rights people in the state that here's something to rally around and those across the country who are looking for some sort of national leader on this that he feels he can step into this role and he can use the California budget, California law as a way to do that. So Jeff, what? how do you uh, rank or rate this as um, uh, its impact on the national political scene? You know, almost everybody agreed that this is a, a grim, uh, grim prospects for Democrats in the midterms. Is with this decision, is this the decision, is this the issue that could turn the midterms around? I wouldn't say that just yet. Um, I, I think regardless of what happens uh, on the abortion issue, I think the House is pretty much gone for Democrats. Um, a, a few races around the margins, sure. Um, the Senate's another matter. Uh, I think the Senate is going to be much closer. I think best case scenario for for Democrats is is they can hold on, at least get their 50-seat majority. Best case in the House, I think they still lose mm-hmm. 10. Um, but this is undoubtedly uh, a motivator. Uh, and Democrats were going to have a turnout problem this election. Uh, they've typically had problems in with turnout in midterm elections. Republican turnout has, has historically been better. Uh, and a lot of Democrats had been disillusioned, uh, depressed with how things have gone, have gone and how little in their mind Biden has been able to deliver. Uh, this is an issue that really injects a real unknown. Uh, and I, and I think it, 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 it does, it does have the potential to really skyrocket turnout and enthusiasm and money. Um, you know, the pro-choice groups have have taken in millions and millions of dollars since this news broke uh, a week and a half ago. Right. Uh, and Lauren, you alluded to this a little earlier. This also has a potential for boosting the standing uh, and, I guess, uh, presence or, of Kamala Harris, right? Uh, it does. Uh, it does if she can get her act together with regard to communication strategy, which I think writ large in the Democratic Party is a, is a problem. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it is a sort of a, um, there's an assumption here because we're so many of us are on the East Coast that the abortion issue is, uh, you know, a top one or two issue. But, you know, when you poll people, uh, the top one or two is something around the economy. You know, we're, we're dealing with a situation here where baby formula is running out and gas prices and inflation are are a problem. And abortion is usually sort of eight, nine, ten. And of course, the reason we talk about it so much is because Planned Parenthood dominates politics on the Democratic side as far as money and influence. And uh, so it gets, an, I think, an outsized uh, part of the political conversation. So I don't I'm not a big believer in uh, the abortion issue being the thing that, you know, turns everything around, certainly is getting headlines. And I see that we obviously all see the demonstrations at the uh, uh, houses and the homes of members of the U.S. Supreme Court. But when people go into the voting booth, they typically are in there thinking about more bread and butter issues and education and uh, money in their pockets. So it's um, 
something that I think certainly the vice president could gain some advantage on, but has not yet. Um, we're all aware of the staff turnover going on with the vice president and really with the Biden administration in general. I think that's impacting her. But we'll have to see whether or not she can um, turn it into something that's a political advantage. So, Melanie, uh, Lauren mentions uh, the protests at some of the justices' homes. Republicans uh, in the Congress are demanding, um, well, first of all, Chief Justice Roberts is demanding that there be an investigation into the leak. Republicans in Congress are demanding that there be an investigation and a crackdown on any protests uh, at any of the justices' home. Um, uh, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, part of the Democratic leadership this week, said, uh, maybe we be they ought to be investigating something else. Here's uh, Congressman Jeffries. If Justice Thomas really wants to deal with this problem of people supposedly unwilling to accept outcomes that they don't like, I've got some advice for Justice Thomas. Start in your own home. Have a conversation with Jeannie Thomas. She refused to accept the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election. Why? Because she didn't like the outcome. Uh, so, Jeff, uh, also on the political front this week, uh, President Biden... Um, you know, speaking out more than he has at any rate um, in the past uh, about the Republican Party. I remember, if you were, of course, we know he, he ran for election saying, I'm the guy that can work with Republicans. This is going to be a new day. We're all going to work together. Uh, and he's sort of been keeping that trend for the last couple of years. That suddenly is changing. Here's just one example of the president this week talking about the ultra MAGA party. Americans have a choice right now between two paths, reflecting two very different sets of values. My plan attacks inflation and grows the economy by lowering costs for working families, giving workers well-deserved raises, reducing the deficit by historic levels, and making big corporations and the very wealthiest Americans pay their fair share. The other path is the ultra-MAGA plan to raise taxes on working families, lower the income of American workers, threaten sacred programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and give break after break to big corporations and billionaires. Ultra MAGA party, Jeff. This is a new term. Uh, does it ring? I like I like the tagline. I, I'm not sure if it's going to get legs, but I, <laughs> I I I understand why he's why he's given this the old college try. Uh, he's he's also seizing on when he's talking about. Uh, the ultra MAGA party raising taxes. He's of course seizing yeah. on Rick Scott's right. uh, 11 point plan or was it 13 point plan? Something like that, <laughs> um, which Mitch McConnell immediately disavowed. Uh, but Republican, or, I'm sorry, Democrats are trying to make hay with this throughout the country. When Rick Scott said he wanted to tax every American, that every American should pay some level of, of, of taxes. Um, I don't blame Biden for for doing this. He has to do this uh, because there's two, two two kinds of elections. There's a referendum election and there's a choice election. The midterm election is almost always a referendum on the incumbent president and his party, especially mm-hmm. when his when they have unified government like they do. Uh, and he's trying desperately to make this a choice election uh, between what we offer and what the other guys offer. Uh, I'm skeptical that he can do that uh, because to Lauren's point, the economic numbers, the economic situation is is not in his favor. It's probably not going to be in his favor uh, six months hence. Um, but he's he's got to He's got to try. But it seems like this is a theme, right, that he's saying that Democrats ought to be running on is to build up the fear of what could happen 
on almost every level were Republicans to take back control of the Congress. Isn't that his ultimate motive, Lauren? Yeah, it is. Um, you know, I, I think about I think about last year in Virginia and that not working. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, these things are are great in terms of the reality that we know. We saw what happened last year at the Capitol. We see what we saw what happened with the presidency of Donald Trump. We see a party that is effectively uh, chipping away at institutions and democracy. But you still have to market that. You still have to have a communication strategy. That makes people feel some fear about that. And we live in an age of misinformation and disinformation. People are greatly influenced by that. Uh, The democratization of technology has allowed anybody to get on a platform and put information out on a very grand scale. And it is working. And Joe Biden, I think a very well-intentioned person, to say the least, uh, but he still tends to think that this is the politics in the Senate of 1973 when he entered. And, um, you know, I can remember him once again, making some statement about uh, how, wow, back in the days when I was, you know, first here, we used to work and sit down with segregationists and, uh, yeah, you know, have, yeah. play poker with them. And of course, when, you know, when he entered the Senate, John Stennis was there. Uh, James Eastland was there. Jesse Helms was there. I understand what he's saying, but at some point, somebody on the Democratic side has to realize what time we live in. And it would be probably beneficial for the democracy of the United States if that person was Joe Biden or Merrick Garland. So far, we haven't seen much to evidence that they know what time it is. And so when history gives you these these moments, people have to step up to that moment. We really haven't seen that, quite frankly, from this White House. So, uh, Melanie, we have so far, um, you know, talked about a lot of issues, but maybe we have um, buried the lead. The biggest story of the week, uh, Elon Musk saying he will let Donald Trump back on Twitter. Uh, is this good for America? Well, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think that uh, is this good for America. I think that that's still very much TBD. To be totally honest, it's still very much TBD if Elon Musk is actually going to acquire Twitter. I mean, I think that that is kind of the craziest sort of part of this news cycle is that there is we have we're watching this tech magnate uh, both make this play, but yeah. then sort of also say, but you know, it's not a done deal yet, and and so. Um, I think that as we are all thrown into a tizzy, my, myself and my news organization included, every time Musk makes these pronouncements, I think we all need to keep in mind that the ink is not dried on this deal yet. Uh, but that being said, I do think that uh, there was a reason why Trump was taken off of this platform and Facebook. And that was because there was a genuine fear after January 6th that he was using these platforms uh, for incitement. Um, I think that what there has since been, I think, um, some real sort of heart, uh, garment rendering among tech executives about this idea of this permanent ban, if that was the uh, the right way to go. Musk said that by permanently ban- banning him, they they actually gave Donald Trump more of a platform. I don't actually think that that's true. I do think that we have seen without Twitter, Trump has lost a lot of that immediacy that he so liked about being able to dominate the news cycle. Uh, I will tell you that that, that was uh, an, a a pronouncement that was ironically cheered by Democrats, because as they are trying to have this sort of ultra MAGA uh, branding, the fact that you have Trump probably Mm -hmm. potentially spouting off off, off, over any old thing and then making those Republican candidates respond to those tweets, uh, I think Democrats would very much like for him to be in the news cycle as part of the strategy. Right. And just a footnote on on, on, uh, on what you mentioned about the uh, uncertainty of Elon Musk's plans. At 5.44 a.m. this morning, he, he, Elon Musk, tweeted out to his 9 million followers, 
that he was putting the Twitter deal on hold. And just about an hour later, he told the Washington or the Wall Street Journal, no, he still wanted to buy Twitter. So who the hell knows, right, what's going to happen on that front? Uh, hey, Jeff, we'll let you comment on the biggest story of the week of all. Again, we buried the lead. There is no longer any Trump hotel in Washington, D.C. What are we going to do for fun and nightlife now, Jeff, in Washington, you know? <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to get a $50 martini. <laughs> I have to find a new home for a $50 martini. I have $50 burning a hole in my pocket. Um, this is, you know, this is the end of a, of a, of a sorted saga, which oh, God. Isn't, yeah. isn't just five years old. It, it goes back really 10 years. I think the original sin here was the, um, was the GSA way before Trump ever announced running for president the original sin was the GSA ever granting the Trump organization this lease. Of course, yeah. it became a huge political issue and a conflict of interest issue. Um, but at the time, I did reporting on this way back when, um, the, the rival groups that were bidding for this were very clear in their communications to the GSA that Trump was not a, a, a to be trusted as a business partner, that his business mm -hmm. history gave all sorts of red flags. And of course, you know, they, they were right. Uh, so I think that's a, it's a cautionary tale for, uh, for, for GSA, uh, well, regardless of the political consequences. I, I just want to point out that the new hotel will be a Waldorf Astoria hotel. So Jeff, there will be another location for you to get the $50 martini. <laughs> It'll Especially be. with inflation, who knows? It would be sixty before too long, and the hundred dollar burger at the bar. All right, with that, we'll wrap up the news of the week. And a big thank you to Jeff Dufour and to Lauren Burke and to Melanie Mason. But don't run away yet. Uh, there's always one story we say with covering so much that stops us in our tracks and says, "Well, that's interesting, or that's sad, or that's funny." Uh, we call it our favorite story of the week. Uh, Lauren Burke, start us off. What caught your attention? Uh, the Atlantic, as usually, the Atlantic gets me again. A story <laughs> by uh, Laura Bazin, uh, uh, Bazelon, sorry about that. Uh, the AC, How the ACLU lost its way. Uh, hmm. It gets into how the ACLU went from being an organization that you know stood for freedom of speech, no matter who was saying it, and due process, no matter what happened or what someone was accused of, to effectively another political organization. And the backdrop of, of this particular example uh, deals with the case of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, the defamation case where we have Johnny Depp suing Amber Heard, 50 million bucks. Mm. And then finding out that the editorial that is at the center of that case was written by the ACLU. And um, that was uncovered because of a December 2021 deposition of the ACLU's general counsel, which, of course, has been played all over the place. And we find out what the internal process is at The Washington Post with their editorial, uh, with that particular editorial. And I thought this was a very interesting piece on a mm. lot of fronts, not just about the yeah. ACLU, but about The Washington Post. So I picked that story. Yeah. Huh. Interesting and, and a sad commentary, too, on, on the ACLU. Um, how about you, Jeff? What, uh, what was your favorite story of the week? Well, we talked earlier about the far right and how Republican leadership and more mainstream members need to get along with them in the House. Uh, and this is hard to do when Marjorie Taylor Greene is in uh -huh. the mix. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, 
Congressman Dan Crenshaw, who is no shrinking violet and no one's idea of a rhino Republican, uh, got into it with MTG on on Twitter this week. Um, Crenshaw said, uh, investing in the destruction of our adversary's military, i.e. Russia, without losing a single American troop strikes me as a good idea. And Marjorie Taylor Greene piped in, uh, so you think we're funding a proxy war with Russia? Uh, how does that help Americans? How does any of this help? And Crenshaw came back with still going after that slot on Russia today, huh? <laughs> RTTV. <laughs> yeah, exactly. MTG TV, uh, <laughs> Moscow Bureau. Uh, so this is, you know, this is a, a, a dynamic which has, has yet to write its final act in the Republican conference. Uh, remember, there was the, a, a relatively anodyne vote over uh, support for Ukraine a couple weeks back, and some couple dozen Republicans voted against uh, support mm-hmm. for Ukraine on the floor. And this is, you know, we could call them the the, the Russia caucus or what have you. Uh, but these these internecine fights are are not going to go away anytime soon. This is this is not no. over. Yeah, but they're fun to watch. They are uh, fun to watch for the <laughs> for the rest of us. Uh, and Melody, there may be uh, different different stories on the West Coast that we're not aware of here. But uh, how about you? What, what was your uh, what caught your attention? It looks like we lost Melanie Mason from from the uh, West Coast. Uh, we'll catch up catch up with her another time and get her favorite story the next time. But meanwhile, my favorite story of the week came uh, during the Senate debate over abortion this week, um, thanks to uh, Senator Steve Daines from Montana. You know, often people say dumb things on the floor, even United States senators. I could not believe this one. Steve Daines showed up to make the case for overturning Roe v. Wade, and he brought with him some great big visual aids about sea turtles. And the point that he made was, look at this, uh, how uh, off-base we are. We have laws that protect sea turtles, protect the eggs of sea turtles. Therefore, of course, following his logic, we should ban abortion. Uh, hello? I mean, <laughs> nobody could follow. It's not only a non sequitur. Uh, I think uh, Senator Daines actually gets it backwards. We may, and as environmentalists, want to protect sea turtles, but no environmentalist has ever suggested that we force sea turtles to give birth, which is exactly what the Republicans want to do to American women. Um, I, I just thought that was such an absurd argument to bring to the Senate floor. I used to think that Tommy Tuberville from Alabama was the dumbest United States senator. Uh, I now give that title to Steve Daines of Montana. Uh, And with that, we thank uh, our panelists. We thank Jeff Dufer from the National Journal, Lauren Burke, uh, Black Press USA, and the Burke File Podcast. And we thank Melanie Mason, too, from the Los Angeles Times. Plus, we thank all of you for listening. Now, we're into the weekend. Enjoy your weekend. Have a great one. But come back and see us next Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.